The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. It has been just a couple weeks since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me remind you of the beauty and intentionality behind it. A couple weeks ago, I was able to view an art gallery, and I was looking at the artist's piece that won Best in Show. And I noticed that the portrait that won Best in Show gave great attention not just to the portrait, but to the frame as well. The setting that held the beauty of the portrait mattered and contributed to its overall beauty. In the Gospel of Matthew, God, speaking through Matthew, has structured what we're reading very intentionally. At the end of chapter 4, we read that Jesus proclaimed the gospel by teaching and healing. At the end of chapter 9, we read Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, again, by teaching and healing. In literature, that's called an inclusio. It bookends a section of material to let you know that that section of material is a cohesive unit. What did Jesus teach? The Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7. Where did Jesus heal? Chapter 8 and 9. Now these healings are not all the healings Jesus ever did. There are many that we know are not recorded, and there are some that we'll read later of in the Gospel of Matthew. But here in chapter 8 and 9, Matthew has nine healings, three sets of three. And these three sets of three all contribute to show us the portrait in the middle. So the frame is the inclusio and the three sets of three. But what is the portrait that the frame is trying to show us? And it's trying to show us the beautiful power of the Messiah King who heals and saves. So it's trying to show us Jesus. So this morning we continue by pursuing both the showing and the telling of the gospel. As a kid in elementary school, perhaps you had show and tell. You bring something with you and you tell about it. That's actually what Jesus is doing here, except the order is reversed. In chapter 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells, here's the gospel, here's what it looks like. But then in chapter 8 and 9, Jesus shows, I've come to make the gospel possible, and I'm going to give you sneak previews to that power through my miraculous healings. And there are three sets of three of them. There are nine of them. Now at the end of each set of three, we get a little more clarity as to what this set of three is. Three or four weeks ago, we preached through the first set of three, and that was Matthew 8, 1 through 17. Now, the last verse of the healing tells us this. If you have your Bible open, look in Matthew 8, verse 17. This is what the first set of three healings was showing us. After healing a leper with a touch, a centurion's servant with a word, and Peter's mother-in-law with a word, we read this in Matthew 8, verse 17. All of this was to fulfill What was spoken by the prophet Isaiah? He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Do you see? Jesus is healing to show that he fulfills the gospel. He is healing to show that he is the man of sorrows who bears our sorrows in his body as a substitute, ultimately on the cross, so that he can take away sin's cause and sin's cost. Now, at different points in my life, I have preached just one healing of the nine. And there's good in that. There's a lot that you can draw from just one of the nine. But today, I want to ambitiously attempt (laughs) to preach the final six all in a consecutive run. And by preaching the final six, we'll have to do something of a 30,000 foot view 
But by preaching the final six, we'll see how they build on one another and interlock with one another. And that, I think, will help us prayerfully grasp them more. So if you have a phone and you use the QR code, that gives you all the detailed notes. But if you just have the booklet, those five big points will work too at the end. So if you're following with your Bible, we are doing the final six. On your notes, that's letter B, because we already did the first three a couple weeks ago. So Matthew 8, verse 23 is where we're going to begin. The verses that were just read by our brother. In this passage, we see famously that Jesus rebukes the winds and the waves. Let's look at it more carefully in God's word. So Matthew 8, verse 23. And when he, that is Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. When you hear the word boat, you might be picturing a yacht or a cruise liner. Please picture a boat with no sails, a small fishing boat. That's what they would have been in. Now verse 24. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Now, if you're picturing the level of storm, don't forget that these are veteran fishermen. These are sailors who are at the sea often. So this is a very, very great storm. Many commentators refer to it as a hurricane. So here they are in what is an incredible storm. In fact, the text says that the boat is being swamped by waves. But while all this great storm is happening, what is Jesus doing? He's asleep. Did you know this is the only place in all four of the Gospels that we ever read Jesus sleeping? You know that's not an accident. The night that he's being betrayed for his crucifixion, do you remember the disciples fall asleep? And he says, can't you watch and pray? Or when he has 40 days and 40 nights fasting in the wilderness, when Satan tempts him. Again, we read of no sleeping at all, though he's tempted to sleep. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus is ever asleep. He's asleep at the time that the disciples think they're going to die. Surely you can relate. Seems like God is asleep right at the moment that I most need him. That's why this true History is so needed for us today. And so verse 25, they do what we probably would have done. They went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Save is the same word used to describe salvation in the Bible. And perishing is the same word used to describe what happens for those who are apart from Christ in John 3, verse 16. Save us, Lord, we're perishing. Verse 26, what Jesus says is very striking. And he said to them, why are you afraid O you of little faith. Matthew Henry puts it very well. He writes, Jesus does not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. See, we see in this passage that fear can be an obstacle to fitting faith. That in fact, often we do not lack faith because we lack information or lack knowledge, but often we lack faith because we've allowed fear to squelch it. So in this passage, Jesus wants them to come to him, but they need to realize who he is and therefore abandon their fear. So verse 26 continues, then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. Great calm, by the way, to help you visualize it in your mind, does not mean gradual Diminution. It means immediate cessation. Immediately he spoke, and by his authoritative word, a hurricane stopped and the waters were placid. It's an incredible miracle where Jesus takes chaos and speaks and turns it into order. In verse 27, we read, And then the men marveled, saying, What 
sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Many times this passage is preached and the force of the sermon is something like, hey, Jesus can calm the storms of your life. And indeed it's true that Jesus can calm the storm of your lives. Most often the preacher doesn't bring out that Jesus also ordains storms in our life for a good and wise purpose. But actually the force of this passage is supposed to be verse 27. By the end of it, we should all be thinking, do we recognize Jesus with a fitting faith response? Or are we left asking, what kind of person is this? So in Matthew 8, 23 through 27, Jesus rebukes the winds and the waves, but his 12 disciples are left wondering, who is this guy? Now let's keep reading. The next one. This is now number uh, five of the nine miracles. Matthew 8, 28 through 34. Here we'll read Jesus healing two demon-possessed men. Look in God's word now in verse 28. And when he came to the other side, now that they've crossed calm water to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they, the demons, cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Now, don't miss where we just were in the passage. The twelve disciples ask, Who is this guy? And the demons see him and say, This is the Son of God. As one commentator put it, While the men in the boat are doubting what manner of man this is, the demons come to tell them. So here the demons have greater clarity as to who Jesus is than the 12 who have been following him. But notice the demons not only know who Jesus is, they know what that means for them. So notice how the verse continues in verse 29. Have you come to torment us before the time? There's many theological things we could unearth if we were, we were in a seminary setting this morning. But the phrase before the time is the only one I want to spend time on you this morning. Notice that the demons know that the time of their ultimate destruction is already determined and it is guaranteed. Wouldn't it be great if we as Americans had such certainty about God's ultimate victory? It seems that every four years when we have an election, somebody starts sounding the alarm that it's all going to fall apart. And that there's no way in the end that God could win and that the whole world's going to fall apart and everything's going to collapse. We would do well to have the clarity the demons have in this passage. Lord, why torment us before the time? Because we know for sure the time is coming when we will be tormented justly for our rebellion. You see, in the end, God wins and evil fails and the demons know it. And here in verse 30 and 31, the demons, knowing that they deserve ultimate punishment, ask for some relief. In verse 30, we read, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. In verse 31, And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Verse 32, And Jesus said to them, Go! So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Several interesting things are going on here theologically. First, we see Jesus, at least in one sense, being somewhat merciful to demons and not making them experience the full torment they could deserve. 
We also see Jesus letting them go into pigs and all those pigs are drowned. And, and that's interesting because we know God cares about animals. We read at the end of Jonah 4.11 that God cared not only about the 120,000 souls, but also about the cattle. So we know God cares about all of his creation. So why does he let these pigs die? And we're about to read the answer. Verse 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Verse 34, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Jesus has just saved two men who were possessed by demons. And when he does so, the city's response to Jesus is to plead with him to go away. Why? Why would they do that? Because when Jesus in his saving grace rescues people, if that interrupts your normal economic stability, you might be more angry that Jesus changed your way of life than thankful that Jesus rescued two people. You see, this city begs Jesus to leave because the presence of Jesus means that life won't be the status quo it was before he arrived. We should know that many people still beg Jesus to leave for the same reason. If Jesus' saving work means that our way of life is shaken, and maybe it even costs us something economically, would we rejoice that Jesus is saving, or would we be angry that our way of life is being interrupted? Now, what better time than 2021 to consider that question? Now, I don't know what God alone knows, but imagine with me for a moment that God in his wisdom and grace knew that the only way to bring revival was for the world that we know it to be stopped. For a pandemic to pause our economic fluidity and normalcy. If indeed God used that to revive the world and bring many people to salvation, would you be angry and beg God to leave so that you could return to your normal, stable, economic way of life? That's what the city of Gadara does, where in fact, we should rejoice. So if you're keeping track, here are the responses to Jesus so far. The 12 apostles say, who is this guy? The city of Gadara says, go away. And the demons say, this is the son of God. So, so far in the miracles, we see very diverse responses. And now let's move to the sixth miracle. And thankfully here, it gets a little bit more encouraging. Now we're in Matthew nine and follow along in verses one through eight. And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic. Let me explain a couple of things. Jesus' home city we know is Nazareth. At this point, it's Capernaum. He's moved his base. Here, a paralytic is brought to him lying on a bed. Let's pick up now in verse two. And when Jesus saw their faith, if you had a highlighter, you should be highlighting here. All these bells should be going off because in all the healings, this has always been the core issue, the faith. Remember the leper, remember the centurion of whom Jesus said, no one has had faith like this. Remember the disciples where Jesus said, why do you have such little faith? Remember the city of Gadara who said, go away. But here are people who have faith in Jesus. And so he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, don't forget the inclusio. Don't forget the frame. What is this picture telling us about? It's telling us about the frame, about how he 
taught and healed to show the gospel of the kingdom. So what does this healing show about the importance of faith and salvation? It tells us that faith is the necessary instrument through which God works his powerful healing and saving work. Ultimately, this is to show us how God saves. He saves through faith alone. Now, we shouldn't be surprised because when Jesus started teaching the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember how he begins his very first words of the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you would come to Jesus to be rescued, you must come realizing you're sick and in need of his healing touch. And these are people who do. Now, I, I, I want to pause here because many of you know where this passage is going, but you forget that if the passage was to end here and Jesus had forgiven the man's sin, but not healed his body, that would have been enough. You see, Jesus is saying, hey, I can see that you're paralyzed, but I know what your ultimate need is. You need to be forgiven of your sin. It's so important for us to remember this because often we miss this. And we focus all our energy and attention in a place that isn't where Jesus actually focuses it. Whatever our ailment is, our ultimate need is the same. It is need for forgiveness to be made right eternally with God. So this man may come paralyzed, but Jesus knows what he really needs is forgiveness of sins. Now verse 3 continues, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. You may not know why they're saying that because you may not be familiar with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if you're not allowed to forgive people of sins because the only person who can do that is God. That's why they're upset. They're saying nobody gets to forgive you of sins unless they're God. Is this man really claiming that he's God? Notice that the Pharisees and the scribes still haven't figured out what the demons figured out right away. <laughs> who is this guy? What does he think he's doing? Verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Nobody can see that visually. Or to say, rise up and walk? That would be verifiable, right? So is that what you want me to do? So verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Don't miss that. Why is he going to heal them? Not because our physical health is the most important thing, but to show our need spiritually can be accomplished by Jesus. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I'll do the easier thing. Because actually it's easier to heal than it is to forgive sins. So then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Don't you see how this is the easier thing? Humans, every generation, every century, every millennia, we work so hard at how to care for our bodies. And we're getting better at a lot of things. And the further we progress on that, the more we think, you see, we can take care of that. You see, we can take care of that. You see, we can fix that. If someone comes paralyzed, we can come up with some ways to kind of help fix that. And that's a good thing. But you know what we can't eliminate? Paralysis. We can find ways to fix results. We can't fix the cause. You see, the world is under sin's curse, and only the king can reverse it. So though we may be able to ameliorate the symptoms, we need a king who can conquer the curse. The king here is showing us 
that he has power over sin's penalty, its presence, and the curse that has affected all things to show us that he is the Savior. Why would we be surprised? The angel told Mary in Matthew 1, Behold, you will bear a son and call his name Jesus. Why is he called Jesus? Because he will save his people from what? Their sins. So here he does what he's always come to do. Verse 7, And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Now they glorified God who had given such authority. Don't miss the last word. You know it's important. Such authority to men. So the disciples said, what kind of guy is this? What sort of man is this? The city of Gadara said, get this guy out of here. The Pharisees said, you can't forgive sins. You're just a man. The crowd, even after watching him heal a paralytic, said, well, he must be a really great guy. Nobody but the demon so far has a clue who he is. Now they do glorify God, but they glorify God because he must have given power to a mere man. And yet notice they also have another feeling and that feeling is fear. Why do you think they're afraid? They're not afraid of the healing. Everybody likes healing. Do you know what they're afraid of? That someone knows that we're sinners. See, often in America, when we use the word sin, we use it ironically or in a lighthearted way, like it's chocolate dessert. Sin, it's fun, it's easy, it's simple. They are grasping that if someone can say, I forgive sin, that means they know the depths of our soul and what our problem really is. So here the crowd is afraid, though they're thankful that it seems like there's a man with God-granted power. And now the final set of three healings. So now Matthew 9, jump down to verse 18, because in the middle of these three sets, Jesus teaches on discipleship, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So now the final set of these nine healings, number six through nine. So Matthew nine, verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now this is encouraging. This is a great example of faith. I know Jesus can raise my daughter from the dead. Verse 19, Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples and behold, A woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Again, these are both great examples of faith, proper responses to who God is. Verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Notice how the crowd responded to Jesus. They laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, the crowd had to then leave. He went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Again, we see the importance of faith interwoven through all of these historical accounts of miracles. But here we're encouraged. We now see that on the individual select level, some people do have proper faith in who Jesus is. But again, we're a little disheartened because on the broad level, the crowd laughed and then had to leave. Let's keep going then to the next miracle, number eight of nine, Matthew 9, verses 27 through 31. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now this is extremely important. 
that are the first people to ask for mercy. And they call him by a messianic title, son of David, the one who will inherit the eternal throne. It's as if they're calling him king of kings. Do you know what that means? Ironically, the high mark of all these miracles, the people who had the greatest clarity, who saw most clearly who Jesus was, are the two blind men. (laughs) Here two blind men have greater sight than the 12 in the boat. Have mercy. We don't deserve your grace, but we request it. Son of David, King of Kings, the one who the Messiah, as promised in the Old Testament, would give sight to the blind, cause the lame to walk, and give healing to those in need. Verse 28, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe, again, emphasizing faith, that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Verse 29, then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, emphasizing faith, again, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it, but they couldn't help themselves. So verse 31, they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. But now we come to the ninth, the final of the nine healings, and it's the shortest. Matthew 9, verse 32 through 34. As they were going away, after he had just healed two blind men, Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. This is a very short account. It doesn't even share what was going on in this man's heart because he's not the focus of this point. We're about to see who is. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But, verse 34, the Pharisees said, Oh, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Meaning the Pharisees no less than the actual demons do. The demons see him and know this is the son of God. The Pharisees see him and say, this is Satan. This is Satan at work. So here now, after nine miracles of amazing, miraculous power, the king has vividly shown that he heals, that he saves, that he is the Messiah. And the ninth and final response we read is, well, maybe it's just Satan at work. We're now ready to draw five applications this morning. So if you're in the booklet, These are the five applications I wrote. May God use them in our hearts this morning. Number one, Jesus repeatedly shows his power over sin's curse. He is the king who heals and saves. Back when the original sin happened in the Garden of Eden, God promised that there would be a deliverer who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent. And throughout all the Old Testament, we read that this king would come and he would restore the kingdom. He would wipe away disease and death. He would cure illness and blindness. He would bear sorrow. And now he's come. And here in Matthew 8 and 9, he previews his power to reverse the curse. As we sing at Christmas time, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And yet we saw that even though he's come and shown who he is, many still refuse. But before we see how we must respond, let me encourage us to pause and just rejoice that our king will ultimately reverse the curse as he previewed in this passage. Several years ago, I had a season in my life where I was spending time at a children's hospital. And if you spent time in a children's hospital, you see things that are just so heartrending. You see toddlers and 
very young children who are significantly disabled and whose lives are much more difficult than the world should be. At the same time, we were watching missionary videos with our church, some that I'd love to show you at some point. They're called Dispatches from the Front. And we were watching missionaries in Syria. And the missionaries in Syria had a ministry where they would make prosthetic limbs for those who had had appendages blown off during bombings in their country. And in the video that we were watching, as they showed the tables where they had prosthetic limbs, they moved towards the last table, and on the last table, they had all these prosthetic arms and legs that were for two-year-olds, for four-year-olds. And seeing that image at the same week that I was spending time at the children's hospital, you walk away just, why is the world so corrupt? Why is it so destroyed? Why is it not what it ought to be? Let this passage encourage you. The world that you wish could be, one day will be. And this passage shows you a preview of what the king will do. The response of all the people should have been, behold, our God has come and look what he will bring. But let me tell you where Matthew goes if you haven't read it before. After 12 chapters of healing, in chapter 13, they say, you know what? This is Beelzebub and let's crucify him. And so Jesus starts speaking cryptically in parables only for his disciples and says, I will no longer establish the kingdom. It will delay and I will come back and return to bring it into fruition. See, our response at Jesus' power should be, praise God, there is one who reverses the curse and will make all things right. Until he does, let us be the best citizens we can be. Let us do every good work we could, but let us know ultimately only the king can make all things new. But that brings us to the response number two on your booklet, number two. As needy people under sin's curse, everyone, everyone must come to realize his need for Jesus. See, that question the disciples asked in the boat, what sort of man is this? You need to answer that today. How will you answer it? How are you answering it? If Jesus comes into your life and that throws off your routine and it throws off your economic stability, are you going to respond like the city of Gadara with annoyance? God, just go away. Will you respond like the, the crowd around the paralyzed man You're afraid that someone might know your innermost thoughts and that makes you uncomfortable? Or will you have the sight the two blind men had? God, have mercy on me. You are the son of David. You are the king. Or perhaps like the Pharisees, you'll just attribute the power of God to another source so that you don't actually have to accept it. See, the king has come. But even great Christians stumble at times. So I don't mean to overly discourage you. John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the best man born of a woman. When he was in prison in Matthew chapter 11, he sent word to Jesus through a messenger and he asked, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 11. John, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, Isaiah 35 said in verse 4, Behold, your God will come and he will save. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be, will be unstopped and the lame shall leap like a deer. That's why he's healing these exact categories to show that he is the fulfillment of the messianic promise. So this morning, respond to him in fitting faith, which leads me to number three on your booklet. 
Though Jesus did proclaim the gospel of the kingdom through teaching and healing, many who saw Jesus' miracles dismissed Jesus as a nuisance or a threat to the way of life they had without Jesus. Many people do the same today. Lord, you seem like a really good guy, and I'm happy to tuck you in my back pocket in case I need you later. But I don't want to revolve my life around you. I mean, I have my own goals. I have my own dreams. You want me to follow you? No, you can follow me, though, if you want. But if we know who Jesus is, then we know that the only life worth living is one where we follow him. One where he is Lord and Savior. Others today respond like the Pharisees did. No matter what they see, they accuse the power of God and they repurpose it to some other source. Well, it couldn't have been God who did all this wonderful stuff, so it must be someone else. It must have happened some other way. It reminds me of the quote I read this week by Margaret Thatcher, where she said this, If my critics saw me walking over the Thames River, they would say it was because I couldn't swim. I love that quote. Jesus literally did walk on water, and what did his opponents say? Well, it's because Satan gave him that power. Today, people do the same thing with Jesus. They can't ignore the creative beauty around us, but then they try to come up with some other way, maybe it occurred, some other way that maybe good things happen in this world. Surely it can't be that Jesus has that power. Let me attribute it to some other source so that I don't have to acknowledge who he is. Which leads me to number four. The only fitting response to Jesus is faith that turns to and trust in Jesus. Did you not see throughout this passage how faith is the recurring theme? The disciples have little faith. The city of Gadara says, go away. But some have active faith that causes them to humbly go to Jesus. How about you? Jesus has been showing what he's already been telling, that he is the king who comes. This is the gospel, but will you come to him poor in spirit? To paraphrase what Jesus will say later, you'll never be healed until you're willing to admit you're sick and you need a physician. But if you'll do that today, you'll humbly say, God, have mercy on me. I need you. Then Christ, the great physician, will give you what you stand truly in need of the forgiveness and acceptance that is our ultimate and most foundational need. But finally, number five, rejoice that the good shepherd has compassion on sheep without a shepherd. We read earlier today, the end of Matthew 9. Will you look at it now? Look in verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed, they were helpless, they were like sheep without a shepherd. You see, at the end of Matthew 9, even though Jesus is healing, trouble is brewing. The shepherdless sheep are about to form camps, factions. A few follow Jesus and trust Jesus. Many aren't sure what to do with Jesus. Some plot to murder Jesus. So what will Jesus do for all these helpless shepherdless sheep. The good shepherd will choose to lay down his life for them. And not only will he lay down his life for them, he will raise it again so that all who come to him will experience both in united faith 
the penalty for their sin, being born away on the cross, being completely removed, and the power over sin, and even its presence being victoriously triumphed over in the resurrection. You know what strikes me in this passage? The timing of it. Of all the times for Jesus to say, look at these poor sheep, I'm willing to die for them. He says it right after the ninth of nine miracles where the Pharisees accuse him of having satanic power. It reminds me of how on the cross at that moment, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do we not have a wonderfully merciful God to have a saving heart even for his crucifiers and deniers? God's saving heart is staggering. But may we have open eyes. I'll read a poem written by George Lansing Taylor. He said, O Savior, we are blind and dumb. To thee for sight and speech we come. Touch thou our eyes with truth's bright rays. Teach thou our lips to sing thy praise. Help us to feel our mournful night and seek through all things for thy light till the glad sentence we receive. Be it to you as you believe. Then swift the dumb to thee will bring till all thy grace shall see and sing. The question the disciples asked in the first miracle we looked at today is the question I would ask you to answer before God before you leave this morning. What kind of man is this? Let me tell you a brief answer that I would give. Who is Jesus? He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the great I Am. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the creator of the universe who's spoken into existence and sustains it by the word of His power. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the great and mighty ruler of all nations whose scepter will have no end and who will bring righteousness to His world. But most importantly for me this morning, He is my Savior. Is He yours? Or are you still asking, what sort of man is this? Let's go to Him in prayer this morning. Oh God, give us the sight of these two physically blind men who saw better than everybody around them so that we cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner, Thou King of Kings, Son of David. Lord, we live in a world that does everything it can to deny, to obscure, to darken, or somehow remove the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And no doubt, Satan works actively to contribute to the blindness that is all around us. And so we beg you to give us sight. We beg you to clear the haze so that the burning image on our heart and mind this morning is how radiant Jesus is. So that there's no doubt in our mind, no equivocation whatsoever. This is my Savior and my God, and I trust Him, and I follow Him, and He's forgiven me, and He will never leave me, and He will never forsake me. No matter what storms there are, I am with Him, and He is mine forever. Because, Lord, all other ground is sinking sand. So move people to the solid rock. Perhaps somebody this morning needs to just talk to someone and say, 
tell me how I can have Jesus like that. Help them do that and help us talk to them. Somebody with a name tag would love to do that. But honestly, as Christians, we have moments like John the Baptist where where we're in prison and life is hard. And then we start saying, are you the one? What's going on? And then remind us of the previews of your power. You gave sight to the blind. You caused the mute to speak, the deaf to hear, and the dead to rise. You have not left us. You have not made a mistake. Even if we are in the depths, as the psalm writer says, even there, your hand will hold me. Your right hand will guide me. Thank you, God, for Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.